Welcome to the BT Focus podcast dedicated to the behavior technician experience and the delivery of ABA services. Hello and welcome to a great four-part DTT Pro Tip series. We're joined again by Ian McGarvey as we explore one of the most essential teaching strategies used within ABA by behavior technicians. There's just so much great content to discuss in this episode. We broke it up into four parts. Parts one and two being released this week, where we're going over just some foundational elements of DTT and some important steps to consider leading up to teaching. And next week, we are going to be releasing part two, where we discuss best practice and, and tips and strategies during and after teaching trials. Now, to give you some great visual examples of DTT, in the show notes, you're going to see a link to a workshop we put out a few years back. Now, you're going to be jumping into a time machine a bit uh, in this video, which we produced uh, a few years ago, back when I was a grad student in RBT. So uh, you'll see a younger version of myself before children and maybe a few less gray hairs. So enjoy our conversation in part one of our DTT Pro Tip series. So here are some considerations. This is taken from um, a number of different procedural checklists that we've, you know, reviewed in the literature about um, specific steps that um, lead up to discrete trial instruction. So we're going to be going through a series of steps that are kind of tailored to what are some things you should do before leading trials? What are some things that you should do when a child responds correctly versus incorrectly? Um, what are some things you should do between trials at inter-trial interval? So as we go through each steps, we're going to just add maybe some clarifying remarks or some pro tips or considerations for each. And Ian and I have had a about 30 minutes of lively discussion off air <laughs> as we're going through these checklists, because there's some important considerations um, for each and, and especially how you can take your practice to that next level on each of these as well. All right. So to begin, Ian, as we're kicking things off, uh, one thing that's important to note before trials, number one, clear your field of distractions. All right. So why is that important, Ian? It's all in the name, discrete trial training. When we are working with our clients in DTT or DTI, we want to make sure that the response and the SD being delivered are paired together. One of the things that we uh, commonly hear is, you know, we don't want to accidentally chain uh, things that aren't meant to be chained together. And while it may sound out of this world or absurd, but there is the possibility that if something else in the environment is consistently going on when you're presenting a specific SD with a specific response, there is the chance that the child may only learn to respond when that additional stimulus is in the environment. So for example, and this is very hypothetical, but let's say you're teaching a, a child to, to label pictures of animals and somehow out of the blue, Every time you hold up the picture of a cat, the kid in the cubicle next to you always sees the picture and says, meow. So those two discriminative stimuli are both being presented at the same time when you then say cat and move on. Well, one day 
let's say then you don't hear the client in the other cubicle say cat, that could be a reason then why you don't respond to the cue because something that's normally there in the environment to evoke your response is no longer there. So a very out of this world reason why we want to be free of distraction that most people wouldn't think of. The big one being that as far as just, you know, layman's terms, attention goes, we want the child's attention to be solely focused on what we are doing. Because if a client is not responding to a task demand or an, an SD, that typically is going to be because of one of three reasons. One, they aren't sure what their response is supposed to be. Two, they're choosing not to respond. They're engaging in problem behavior. Three, they're not attending and did not hear the SD. By making sure the child is attending, and we're gonna talk about attending a little bit more here in a second, but by making sure that the field is clear of distractions, that increases the likelihood that the child is able to attend and is going to respond to the SD when it's presented. Yeah, very well said. And and I think to kind of distill that in maybe some like practical terms as well, we wanna be organized because we wanna be teaching efficiently, right? So thinking again, back to our learner and their ability to attend to whatever the instructions we're providing on our end, if we aren't organized as a teacher, as an implementer in that moment, we bring them to the table or bring them to whatever we're teaching trials. And then we're hunting through stimuli and going through different material. And if we're not prepared on our end, those are precious moments of teaching that we're missing. Preparation is a huge, huge piece of DTT that a lot of technicians miss out on. I actually just did an observation with a uh, just a wonderful technician last week. And this was a a big part of why DTT was failing, especially Mm -hmm. if you have clients that don't necessarily uh, attend well or often engage in escape-like problem behaviors during DTT, making sure that there is minimal time between the time they sit, the first trial and the next trial and the next trial, any time that's in there is is essentially the open door for the child to engage in problem behavior or to run away. And so when you bring the child to the table and you aren't ready to go, you're essentially just asking for the kid to, again, think if you're the child and you're sitting there, you're not doing anything, you have no reinforcers, the next thing you're going to do is, well, I, I, I guess I'll just go like, you know, um, so it's, yeah, I, I can't reiterate the importance of when the child's in reinforcement, we obviously want to make sure we're parenting, but part of that time also needs to be spent mentally and physically preparing for that next DTT session, having your materials ready and knowing what you're going to present. Yeah, that's well said. And, and to maybe new staff who are listening to this, we understand that this is a skill set that takes time to develop. So, so much time, so much time. So, so don't be discouraged in ways if you reflect on your own practice and think, hmm, like what are some ways that I can get better? We, we, we want to take it from that approach, right? This is meant to be encouraging and, and, and uplifting of how you can make your practice and take it to the next level. So yeah, to your point, being mindful of the time spent leading up to trials, between trials. I remember being as a behavior technician and really like covertly in my head, if you will, a lot of times I was checking myself like, how much time am I waiting between an instruction before I deliver an error correction? Or similarly, how much time am I spending between entering that teaching environment and providing an instruction? And we, we want to make that interval crisp and clean to the point. And so ways that you can be set up for success for that is being really organized. So almost as if like you're planning ahead, you know, between programs and between trials and, and coming into session with a plan. That's an earlier podcast that we recorded of having a plan. And then in the moment, you're just following through with it, that plan in terms of teaching. So 
really good considerations, Ian. Moving on to our next point. This next point is predicated on the assumption that we have already conducted and regularly conduct preference assessments because motivation drives learning. As a behavior technician, you should always be mindful of what is the most effective reinforcer that we have access to in the moment to reinforce that behavior, right? So going in, um, there should never be a question of what that reinforcer is. You should be routinely running a preference assessment. Check out some of our other earlier podcast episodes on preference assessment. There's a lot of really great content out there and refer to your supervising clinician, but you should not be going into teaching blind with respect to what is the most reinforcing item or activity for that client in that moment. Any thoughts there, Ian? Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to get a little I'm going to get real deep into this one and I, I know we only have so much time but you know just this this topic is near and dear. Um, we've all been behavior technicians and and I firmly believe as a behavior analyst you can't be a competent behavior analyst without being a competent technician. And yeah. you know just not not trying to toot a horn but I, I felt like DTT was just my I was really good at DTT when I left become, being a technician. And um one thing I would challenge the behavior technicians out there is, yes, preference assessments are, are very important. And the common thing that you see and hear is that you bring the kid back to the table and you present the array of reinforcers or you ask that magical question of, you know, what do you want to work for? Well, in doing so, that preference assessment creates a motivating operation for the client. Um, it lets them know, and as well as lets them know that, hey, if you sit and do the work that's being asked of you, reinforcement is going to happen. And one of the things I challenge you technicians out there to do is get to the point where you don't have to do that preference assessment every time before you sit to work. And what I mean by that is, is when you're able to sit and just go into working, what that tells you is that client trusts that you're going to provide reinforcement when they're done with working because of the learning history. You've done it so many times that you've built that relationship that the client knows that it's going to come and you don't have to tell them it's going to come. You don't have to give them the, hey, first work, then blank, because essentially that's what we're doing when we do preference assessments a lot of times is we're, we're letting the kid know, hey, you're, you're going to get reinforcement, but first you got to work. Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting point. Um It's predicated on the fact that you've already established a learning history with that client of frequent and consistent delivery of reinforcers during that instructional teaching, I guess, what would be the benefit of removing that like vocal aspect for our, our technicians, the, the, the mere act of frequently asking that preference assessment? Cause I don't, because I think that's a, kind of a unique point. It's a great question. And ultimately it's because in real life, anytime we have to do something we don't want to do, Someone doesn't always come along and saying, well, this is what's going to be the result if you do that. That's just kind of how life is. Natural consequences or consequences that maybe we're aware of or create are going to be what control our behavior. We want them to just know that something is going to follow that they find reinforcing versus being have to be told. And oftentimes what we can see with kids, again, when we're talking about the use of prompts and making sure that we fade prompts is a lot of kids, when, when that preference assessment is used too much, they won't work without it. They actually mm. will, you know, again, when we're talking about attending and problem behaviors, they won't come to the table and attend until they've been told, oh, you know, what do you want to work for? Oh, I want to work to come back to the gym. Oh, well, yeah, but let's go work then. And then they're ready to go back. So just being cognizant of that is it can be important because again, we don't want dependency of 
the preference assessment to lead to task completion. Yeah, that's a really unique point because behavior analysis, we're very mindful of, let's say, for example, the unintended consequences or unwanted effects of something like punishment per se, right? Which is could result in emotional responding. It could re result in the breakdown of rapport. It could break, like, there's a lot of considerations when it comes to a punishment type procedure within behavior analysis. But you did allude to an, a good point of that, you know, reinforcement has some potential unwanted effects that we have to be mindful as well and program for. So, always looking at how can we fade the delivery of the reinforcement over time to more closely mirror the contingencies of life, you could say, is important. And I think that's certainly an advanced concept. And this is one that you should work very closely with your supervising clinician to determine. But it's an important one nonetheless. In life, there's not always going to be that same one-to-one -one correspondence or that fixed ratio one correspondence between appropriate responding and the delivery of reinforcement. That's just not possible <laughs> in life or for parents. Um, so yeah, an important consideration. That being said, still having an identified reinforcer um, prior to the delivery of that instruction or the start of that teaching session is, is still highly important because we want that learner to be motivated, um, whether they're directly assessing or through all the means we've previously discussed. All right. So going on to the next one, and Ian, this is another one that we had some fun talking about before the podcast, which is establishing a ready behavior. Now, a couple different schools of thought here. Um, what do we mean by ready behavior? Well, by ready behavior, we mean that the child is oriented towards the instructor or the materials, and they're engaging in some sort of behavior that shows we have that joint attention, right? In other words, we have that child's focus prior to initiating that teaching sequence. Why is that important? You alluded to earlier, you know, if a child is not responding, it's usually due to three of the following tasks. Either they, they don't have the skills necessary to perform the skill, they're choosing not to, or they're not, I'm going to use layman's term, they're not paying attention, <laughs> right? We, we want to ensure that that child is paying attention prior to presenting an instruction because we want to set that child up for success. We want to show them that responding fluently and appropriately is going to result in good things. It's going to result in reinforcement. So having that focus or attention as an essential starting point is key. However, the means by which we establish that ready behavior may vary depending on the learner. So one of the points that we were driving home in, and I'll describe part one, you describe part two, is some of our learners, especially early learners who might re require some sort of like vocal instruction from the therapist initially to start a behavior. So let's see, ready hands, eyes on me, right? Instruction such as that, so vocally coaching that client or prompting that client to attend to that therapist and that instruction. But Ian, you made a great point about the role of teaching through, I'm going to use behavioral momentum as another way, again, to fade some of those vocal instructions over time to better shape that behavior towards something that's going to occur in the natural environment. Can you elaborate on that? So first thing I want to say is, Ultimately, regardless of how it's taught, the why and what the end goal is, is what's important here. And the end goal is when a client comes to sit and work, the end goal should be that when they sit, they already know that these are the things they should be doing. They should know that when they're going to sit at the table, 
they're going to need to be attending, displaying, as we would say, whole body listening, if you will, or you know whatever verbiage people use. Um, but with a lot of our young early learners, that's not necessarily the case. And so, yes, we might initially provide the first task demand, if you will, of the schedule of reinforcement might be some sort of like readiness task, such as, you know, like you said, sit, you know, ready hands or, or what have you. And that's fine. And obviously that's what we would consider a prompt in that moment. And with any prompt, we, we need to have a plan to fade that prompt, because if we don't, whenever we leave a prompt in too long, it results in prompt dependence. And we don't want a child to learn to only attend at the beginning of a work session, if you will, when someone says, okay, you know, ready hands or, or whatever your cue is, we want that child to eventually learn over time that when they sit, the first thing they should do is attend. And one of the ways I've done that in the past is through shaping and differential reinforcement. And rather than having to present that cue, number one, just sitting, attending and, and being ready should be intermittently reinforced as if you've been presenting task demands. And just like Dr. Hanley would say, you know, again, shorties, right? Shorties don't just have to be for coming back to the table. You can use shorties to reinforce lots of different things. Um, and in this case, for someone who maybe problem behaviors aren't, you know, an issue, attending is the deficit that we're looking at. We can reinforce that in a similar manner by using intermittent schedules. So, so to jump in real quick for our listeners, what you're saying, Ian, is to help individuals who were trying to just focus on the, the foundational skills of attending, right? Some of the time, Dr. Hanley uses the term shorty. I like that. It's kind of fun. Um, what you're saying is if you provide the instruction, hey, it's time to go to the table and they transition over the table without problem behavior, they sit down, they show that they're ready to learn. What you're saying is what's the response? Some of the time by the therapist. Great job. Excellent job. Come on let's over. Go way to go. Let's go back to reinforcement. Let's go, let's go back to your way. You listened so well, right? So we are, what we're doing is we're reinforcing steps in the chain, that behavioral chain that you're referring to of, you know, these are all of the components that go into fluent responding. Attending is an important foundational skill. So we should be mindful of that. Sometimes we should just be reinforcing that aspect alone. Yep. That's built into Dr. Hanley's, their skill-based teaching protocol that we have done a lot of work with um, and continue to do so. So very good. All right. One more thing that I just want to add in terms of ready behavior is I have found, especially for clients that we've established that repertoire, we've successfully paired, our attention is a very valuable reinforcer. When it comes to establishing ready behavior, I found the mere fact of waiting, right? Waiting on the part of the therapist until they have that attention before providing the instruction can be highly effective in, in in some cases, right? So what I'm not advocating for is waiting for 30 seconds or a minute before providing some sort of you know vocal stimuli. But I'm saying for some advanced learners, and I think some of you who are listening probably have some in mind, sometimes that just waiting three to five seconds when you're both seated at the table can be an effective way to establish that attention, right? Because um, we want to provide those instructional sequences when we have their attention. So very good. Ultimately, and, and again, comes back to shaping, the client will learn over time. The quicker I attend, the quicker I get to task demands, the quicker I get to task demands, the quicker I get to reinforcement. Yeah. And that's why a, a negative side effect sometimes during DTT, which we, we'll probably touch on a little bit here is, is scrolling. Um, mm. When you have a client who learns, oh, 
when I respond to a task command as quickly as I can, it, it, it's a good thing. They're trying to respond quickly, but not necessarily responding with the correct response and not knowing the correct response and knowing they don't know the correct response, but yet still responding. And I just said a lot of stuff there. <laughs> but, but again, um, in the case of this, the child has learned over time, oh, when I respond quickly, I get to reinforcement more quickly. And that's what we're doing by providing that pause, that time delay can help shape the child to learn, oh, the, the longer I choose not to attend, the longer I have to sit here and wait until I can start working. Yeah. I think we can probably think back to a time like being in grade school or some sort of classroom setting where the teacher's in the front, we've got a ruckus class in the background and the teacher says, you know, I'll wait, right? <laughs> uh, and then you said that, you know, silence ensues by the part of the classroom, a similar type concept there. Yeah. Um, and that's one that you probably want to verify more with your supervising clinician sure. first because there can be other you know side effects yeah. from trying the waiting them out because ultimately if a child is doing it purely because they don't want to work well now it's you're kind speech. of you're shooting yourself yeah. in the foot yeah 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 more power to you know you know it's just like the whole oh i don't want to take a test so i'll go get myself put in time out yeah. well you know yeah i say we say all of these things with like the explicit expectation verify with your supervising clinician because there can be client specific variables to be mindful of yeah. Yeah. certainly the function of behavior being probably number one on that list, but these are all considerations we can say to hopefully help elevate your practice. So um, very good. So so now we have cleared the field of distractions. We have established through a number of needs an effective reinforcer. We've established a ready behavior. Now we're ready to start <laughs> the act of, of presenting DTT. Thank you, as always, to our friend, Ian McGarvey. Thank you for listening to this episode of the BT Focus podcast. Be sure to tune in for the remainder of our four-part DTT Pro Tip series as we give you more tips and strategies to elevate your practice as a behavior technician. Until next time.